and let's pray. Oh, Father, we sing um, the words, Be Thou My Vision. That is our prayer, that you would be our vision, um, that, you, that we would be captivated by you and everything we do. We love you, and it's only because you first loved us. There is no way we would want to be here this morning um, except for you changed our heart. You gave us a new heart by um, going to a cross and forgiving our sins when we hated you and we were your uh, enemy. And in your kindness and in your mercy, you saved us. Jesus suffered on a cross. He was buried. He rose on the third day and ascended to heaven. And now, for your children, we have your spirit, and we have your precious promises in your word, and we, ha- we know, we have hope that we will be with you in eternity one day. And so, what, um, what glorious truths, Lord. And this morning, I pray, Lord, that we would be teachable women, that we would have soft hearts, and we would have um, clear minds, um, put away all the distractions of the morning, and sit for this hour and soak in what your word says about our hearts, what it says about your word engaging in our hearts, and what it says about what your word says, what you say to us about our homes and how you want us to respond. We love you, Father. We commit the morning to you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going to do what we do is it or not? Is it? A little bit? Okay. <laughs> um, we're going to do what we always do every time we're together. So turn your notebooks over and we're going to look at Wellspring's purpose and the disciplines. So the purpose, the reason we are here at Wellspring is to equip and encourage one another, the women of Grace Bible Church, to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus, toward Jesus Christ. And we do that with his word so that there's a purpose, there's a reason. We want to live gospel-transformed lives. And that does something. It strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. That's why we're here. And we have three disciplines that we focus on. The first discipline is our hearts. We, um, we are the faithful women of God shepherd her heart worshipfully, toward God, through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. We're here to encourage one another to lead our hearts, to draw near with our hearts to his word, to worshipfully pursue God through his word with an expression of love and need for Jesus. And it just, it takes discipline. It just does that worship takes place when you open your Bible and you read your Bible. And I'm so, so thankful for Wellspring and for the opportunity to be encouraged to prioritize my life with these disciplines. Um, As I look back over my life, it grieves me to, um, I don't want to start crying from the very beginning, (laughs) to think about um, times over the years, especially when I was young and a new believer, when I missed this. I missed being with the Lord and making time with him um, in his word a priority and so um, I'm thankful to be here and I'm thankful for this teaching when we are disciplined in shepherding our hearts as we meet with him in his word that's when we are strengthened it's when our affection for Jesus grows it's when it's how we can serve um, or will want to serve and obey him and think rightly and how we guard our hearts. And we can shepherd our hearts after we close our Bible. Shepherding our hearts, it doesn't end when we close our Bible. Actually, it just, it's kind of just beginning. Or it's ongoing. So it's important to spend time with God and his word. But remember, shepherding our hearts doesn't end there. Our hearts need shepherding with what we know from his word constantly. It's an ongoing shepherding and strengthening of our inner new man. Life is busy. Life is busy. Probably for every one of us, yes. And you know what? Seasons will continue, continually change throughout your entire life, but keep fighting. 
keep fighting and uh, to make a meeting with him in his word a priority, you know, we just we shouldn't think that it's even an option. And it takes discipline, and we'll probably be fighting for this the rest of our lives. So we have to have to be purposeful, and we have to be diligent with this. And then the second discipline is about the relationships within our home. We will be focusing on discipline too this morning, uh, for the rest of the morning. But the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And you know what? It can be really easy to kind of skip over, leapfrog over these relationships, the people in our homes, to get to other things, to get to other people, and neglect those relationships right there in our home. So we have to be concerned first um, about those relationships that God, that God has placed right there in our homes and with those who enter into our homes. So as we live gospel-transformed lives, it begins in our sphere of influence, right where God has placed us. So when we talk about household relationships, and we're going to be talking about, I'm going to say your home, I'm going to say your household relationships throughout the morning, just know it's for everyone, talking about everyone, regardless of your season of life or circumstance. There isn't anyone that discipline to doesn't include. So whether you're single, living alone, whether you have roommates, whether you're married with or without children, whether you're empty nesters, grandparents, caring for family outside of your home, whatever your circumstance, discipline too applies to you. And we want to give off an aroma of someone who loves God and meets with him in his word, who delights in him, who treasures him, and then lives out a gospel-transformed life right there. Right there. We want to make an impact for the gospel right there. And I just want to say it's so encouraging to see so many of you being faithful, diligently caring for your house and caring for those in your home and for those who enter into your home. Many of you are an example to me. Our kids are grown and we're empty nesters. And in all honesty, I have many regrets in this area. And so moms... Mommies, I don't want you to have the same regrets. I don't want you to have the same regrets that I do. You have such a gospel opportunity before you. So um, I just don't want you to miss it. Looking back, I wasn't as diligent in this as I wish I had been. But God is so gracious. He's so gracious. It's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. All right, the third discipline is ministry. With the heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. This is how we minister the gospel to the people in the church, how, we, how the body cares for the body to help the body grow. This is, we're talking about our small groups and relationships and friendships and next-generation relationships and wellspring. And this is how we care for those outside of the church as well. We're going to be stepping into people's lives as we continue to grow and practice Discipline 1 and Discipline 2. All right, so even after just two weeks of Wellspring, we're beginning to see just how critical it is that we care for our hearts with God's Word, right? And like I said, this morning we're going to move right into seeing the importance God places on our homes, discipline too. And we will see God's inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our homes. The home is where the quality of our heart shepherding is put on display. And we're going to look at nine categories to help us see God's heart for the household relationship. And you can go ahead and turn to Exodus, Exodus 20 to 12 if you want. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to survey Scripture. We're going to start in the Old Testament and we're going to work our way forward into the New Testament. And that's because that's how God gradually unfolded his revelation to us. We want to work our way from front to back so that we get a full sense of God's heart. And the first category we're going to look at is the relationship between the heart and household relationships. 
And so we're going to start by looking, looking at Exodus 20:12. And as we look at this, we need to remember, Christians are not under Mosaic law. We don't obey the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother because it's in the Ten Commandments, but we do obey it because Jesus taught it in Matthew 15. Also, when we see a promise in the Old Testament, most often it's given to Israel, not to Christians, unless it's repeated in the New Testament. It doesn't mean that there's no value in Mosaic Law. It does have value because it reveals God's heart. All of Scripture is revelation. All of Scripture is profitable. All of Scripture provides examples of which we can learn from, and it shows us the character of God. We don't want to miss that. We want to obey, though, for the right reasons. We obey under Christ. We exalt Christ because he is greater than Mosaic Law. Now, in Exodus 20, 12, that, um, it's in the middle of the Ten Commandments. It's the fifth commandment, verse 12 is. And the first four commandments are concerned with Israel's relationship with God. They're vertical. And then we see a turn, a different focus in the remaining commandments. They're horizontal, which means that they focus on relationships between people. And we're going to look at those commandments and focus specifically on household relationships. Let's look at verse 12. <clears throat> Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Here he's speaking of the land that's promised to Israel. And we see the first human household relationship God deals with is the parent-child relationship. The way children are to respond to their parents. They're to show them honor. And then, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And here we see God is focused on the husband-wife relationship in the home. And in verse 17, God is concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's household when he says, you shall not cover, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Israel was to be concerned that they weren't, they weren't looking wrongly at another person's household. They were to focus on being content in their own household and to think rightly about everything and everyone in and associated with the household. It's really interesting. The first four commandments address Israel's relationship with God, how they relate to him, and the very next thing he addresses is household relationships. As God's giving Mosaic law, he has very specific expectations for the household and those foundational relationships. So we see God's priority and what is important to him. Now let's turn to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, 9 and 10. And this is where Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, but they rebelled and they wouldn't go and take possession of the land God was giving them, so they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And because of that, they weren't allowed to go into the land until the generation that rebelled died off. So now 40 years later, Moses is talking to their children who are now grown who were told originally to honor their parents, and now many of them are parents, and Moses is at the end of his life, and he's reteaching them the law before they enter the promised land. And in verse 9, he says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. Why? So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. That's discipline one spelled out for Israel, right? But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. That's discipline too. Do you see how he ties the heart and the home? And verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. So the burden for the Israelite household was for parents to make known to their children what God did in redeeming them from Egypt. God's heart was that they would take care of their own heart with his word and teach their children. Same for us. In Deuteronomy 6, um, let's go there to Deuteronomy 6, and these verses are called the Shema, the Hebrew word to hear, to listen, and to obey. 
In verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you to today shall be on your heart. There's discipline one. God connects love for him with his word. And inseparable from discipline one is discipline two. Verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you hear God's heart? the household he's saying your household israel is to be dominated by concern for my word there's to be an inseparable connection between love the lord your god with all your heart and teach your children discipline one our heart discipline two, our homes are inseparable god wanted israel to impress his words on their own hearts and on the hearts of the next generation. How? By living them out on a daily basis. By talking about them. By thinking about them. They were to constantly be on their minds and hearts. The older generation was to constantly model their complete loyalty to God in every way possible. Now let's turn to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. And uh, as we see the influence that our hearts have on our home, this passage is really interesting because we're going to see the influence flows both ways. Not just from our heart to our home, but also from our home to our heart. Starting in verse 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, and then he lists seven nations that are greater and stronger than them, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, and you shall utterly destroy them, you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. So the Israelites are told that when they enter the promised land, they're to completely destroy the inhabitants. They're to make no treaties with them. They're to show them no mercy. And then verse 3, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Well, we're going to see this played out a little bit later. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the consequence, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. God is telling them that there can be no household in Israel where... An Israelite marries a foreigner to worship another god. He makes it very clear the kind of household he desires. And this kind of idolatrous household is not to exist in, in Israel. Why? Because hearts are easily led astray. Hearts get turned away from Yahweh. So the burden in Israel was on the fathers and mothers not to allow their children into this kind of marriage to teach them in such a way their children the next generation would want to follow God they would not want to abandon him and part of that meant not marrying people who followed other gods so we see it goes both ways what's going on in our homes does influence and impact our heart the same way that our heart does influence and impact our home you get that We'll see the heart's influence again in our next passage. On uh, Let's turn to Psalm 78. Now here's an example of the inseparable connection between what we do with our hearts and the impact it makes on the next generation. Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us we will not conceal them from their children but tell to the next or tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children 
that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. That's already four generations right there. Why? That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its hearts and whose spirit was not faithful to God. They were not to follow after the example of their parents who failed to watch over their hearts, who quickly forgot about God and who became disloyal to him. He says their hearts were stubborn and rebellious. Here's a father. He's telling his household, don't be like the prior generation who did not care for it, who did not shepherd their hearts. Children, don't be like your great-grandparents. Don't be like your parents who did not do this. It's kind of sobering to think, to think that the next generation would say something like that about us. We certainly don't want that. Even though we know this passage is addressed to Israel, we know that there is a principle that we can take away as believers today. We need to be convinced that God cares about our hearts and the impact we make on the next generation. All right, let's move into the New Testament. Let's turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. And we'll see again, God addresses this inseparable relationship between the heart and household relationships. It's a repeat of the fifth commandment, but now it's brought under the authority of Christ for his church through the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And then now to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So first Paul addresses the children. Obey your parents. How? In the Lord. Not simply out of fear of punishment. The motivation for obedience is out of love for God, a reverential love for God. Children need to be taught to obey their parents in a way that honors the Lord. We know that God is the one who sovereignly does a work in, in a heart, right? But it is the parents' responsibility to teach them and shepherd them in the gospel. And you know what? I know you know this, but much of the teaching is modeled as well. And then in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so parents in particular must be faithful with discipline and instruction in the Lord so as not to frustrate their children. And this requires much hard shepherding on our parts, right? (laughs) Yes. So we see God again is demonstrating now in the New Testament the household relationships that matters to him in Christ. You don't need to turn to 1 Timothy 3. It's on your outline. Um, But here Paul is instructing Timothy regarding overseers or elder qualifications for the church. And we see here the um, household is so important to God in order to be qualified as an overseer, to be qualified as an elder. A man must manage his own household well. And set an example for the rest of the body. I'll read it uh, for you. It says, He must be one who manages his own household well. How? Keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Again, we see that's how important the household relationship is to God. As you read your Bible... You cannot deny that God places a high concern on his word, on our hearts, and on our household relationships, right? Okay, let's turn to Titus 2. Titus 2, we're pretty familiar with that, and there'll be more teaching on that later this year. But here, women are addressed. 
Titus 2, starting in verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to, now notice the focus on the household, teach them to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Do you see the main concern there? It's the word of God. A woman's faithfulness in her household is of great significance in the gospel mission. As a woman cares well for her own heart, she shepherds her heart, and is faithful in those household relationships, it impacts the way others speak of God's word. So, after surveying the Old Testament and working our way into the New Testament, how could we not be concerned? Not only about our own hearts, um, but about our household relationships as well. Because we see it's very important to God, right? All right. So let's go to number two on your outline. And we're going to look at an Old Testament example of a woman who grasped God's heart for the family and home. Turn to the book of Ruth. Sweet Ruth. Ruth's life took place during the time when there was no king in Israel. It was a time when the judges ruled. And the book of Judges, right before Ruth, Joshua Judges Ruth, ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the spiritual climate. No submission to God, no submission to authority. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. In the midst, and in the midst of this dark period of history, Ruth's life is a refreshing exception to that. In Ruth 1, we find a man named Elimelech, and he takes his wife Naomi and his sons, and they move to Moab because there was a famine in Israel, and then he dies, and after that, his sons marry Moabite women, and then his sons die. Naomi's husband and Naomi's sons, um, they die. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? But she heard the famine was over in Israel, and she heads home, and Naomi encourages her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab with their own people, with their own culture, <clears throat> and one of them agrees, Orpah. But Ruth, she clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and again, Naomi urges her, go back like your sister-in-law did. Go back to your people. Go back to your Moabite gods. But Ruth responds with a bold declaration of faith in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth declares that Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true God, is her God. And then listen to what she says next. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth is prepared to leave her culture, her land, her language, to, to be with Naomi. I mean, think about that. She's leaving everything she knows. I kind of know what that is. <laughs> leaving everything you know. <laughs> to be with her mother-in-law. In Ruth's mind, to have Yahweh as her God meant being devoted to her mother-in-law. Ruth is a, a beautiful role model of um, a woman whose heart is for God first and demonstrated, she demonstrated that by loving her widowed mother-in-law. The same mother-in-law who encouraged her to stay with the Moabite gods, stay there, find a husband, the mother-in-law, by her own admission, was a bitter woman. You see that in verse 20. She returns to her home in Bethlehem, and the other women say, Is this Naomi? And she says, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
She's just not bitter. She's bitter with God. But this proud, bitter woman is family to Ruth. And Ruth chooses to love her. Even though she was a foreigner, she had no idea what the future would hold for her. <clears throat> her love for God drove her to love Naomi. Sadly, we can't keep going because this is such a wonderful story that we don't have time. I encourage you to, you'll, you'll get there in your reading plan this year. But um, there, it's, it's wonderful how she cares so well for Naomi and how it turns out. You have to read that on your own. Let's uh, keep going to number three on your outline. And we're going to look at an Old Test- or some Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the home and family. <clears throat> you can read on your own the account of Eli and his sons in 1 Samuel, but Eli failed as a father and as a spiritual leader, and God held him accountable. Because it was for, for Eli, it was more important to please his sons than to please and honor God. And with so much emphasis on the household relationship, it's just important to remember it's, it's not God's desire that we would set our household relationships up so high that it would honor our family over him. And then in 1 Kings 11, we see Solomon's example and how his heart was turned away from Yahweh. You know, how many concubines and wives he had from other nations and um, the Lord was angry with him um, because his heart was turned away and he was not fully de- devoted. And you can read um, about that on your own. But let's turn to 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21. After seeing Ruth, who understood God's heart for the home, we're now going to look at a couple of women who did not. So we're going to look at Jezebel and Athaliah. And as you're turning there, here's a little context. God made David king over all of Israel, all 12 tribes, after the death of Saul. And David was succeeded by his son Solomon as king, who was king um, over all of those tribes. And then after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided into a northern and southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is most often referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom is usually called Israel. So Jezebel, she comes along about 75 years after the death of Solomon. Can you tell us again where you're reading? Oh, yes, I will. First um, Kings 21. Is that right? I don't think so. Maybe 11. Oh, sorry. Uh, 11. Okay. okay. Yes. Sorry. Okay. No, we're going to look well. I'm just trying to give in context. I'll let you know in a sec when I get down there. But here's, um, I should have checked that, and I thought I did. But I will, I will in a second. So what we need to remember is um, Jezebel, the, the main point of this, is Jezebel married King Ahab. And uh, he was a king in the northern kingdom. And she was the daughter of a foreign king. And remember back in Deuteronomy 7, we saw that intermarrying a pagan nation was forbidden. Right? Nonetheless, Ahab marries Jezebel, brought her to Israel to be queen. And with her, he brought false gods, false idolatrous worship, thus provoking God. So already we see this is not a man or a woman who understands God's heart for the marriage or family. Now, we know that Israel was plagued with idolatry throughout her history, but most of the time, they did kind of continue to give God some kind of lip service, but not Jezebel. She wanted, Jezebel wanted to destroy worship of Yahweh. And in 1 Kings 21.4, we see Jezebel finds out that her husband is stolen and vexed. <clears throat> so that's where we are. Um, because this man, Naboth, wouldn't sell him his vineyard. So Jezebel schemes to get the people to kill Naboth so that Ahab can go and steal his uh, vineyard. Now in Israel, the land was supposed to be handed down from generation to generation, but Jezebel has no regard for the home, no regard for family, no regard for the ways of God. It was trivial for her to take a man's life, to murder to get his land, and to rob his family of their inheritance. 
And in 1 Kings 21-25, we see a commentary on Ahab after this incident. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. What an indictment. And stop and think about that. This one woman, Jezebel, is responsible for Baal worship in Israel, persecution of God's prophets, murder of Naboth, robbing a family of their inheritance, and inciting a king, her husband, to do evil, using and abusing the influence in her home. But sadly, that's not the end. Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter, Athaliah. And Athaliah married Jehoram, and he's a king in the southern kingdom. Now remember, her father Ahab is king in the northern kingdom, so sadly Jezebel's wicked influence spread to her, uh, through to her daughter. How? Well, we see in 2 Kings 8, and you don't need to turn there, Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his wife, Athaliah. So now we see a husband doing evil because of his wife, who had been influenced by her mother. And what kind of evil did he do? Well, Second Chronicles 21 tells us that um, when he had taken over the kingdom of his father, he killed all of his brothers. All of his brothers. And then Jehoram and Athaliah, they have a son, and they named him Ahaziah. I've had to practice all of these words, these names, believe me. <laughs> but he also did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his connection with his mother's family kind of hard to keep straight, but so far we see Jezebel's evil influence on Ahab, the king of Israel, her disregard for Naboth and family. We saw the evil influence passed on to her daughter, Athaliah, who had an evil influence on her husband, the king of Judah, and now we see it extended to Athaliah's son as well. A corrupted husband, murder, robbery, corrupted children, a man murdering his own brothers, more corruption of a husband and children. This is the exact opposite of God's heart for the home and for household relationships. He designed the home to be a place where his name is declared, where his mighty works are remembered, where they're taught, where they're praised, where one generation exhorts another generation to love God and obey him. But this family has turned the home into a place that spawns evil, even against one another. They rejected anything that had to do with God's heart for the household. You know what? It keeps going. We're not done. Now, in 2 Kings 10, Athaliah's son, King Ahaziah, is killed. And then in 2 Kings 11, 1, when Athaliah... Um, I think that's where that is on your outline. Uh, 2 Kings 11, 1, 1, it says, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all her royal offspring. Do you see what this is saying? This is a grandmother killing all of her grandchildren. And stop and think about that. Athaliah annihilated her grandchildren. Why? So she could be in control, so she could be in charge, so she could rule. She wanted the throne. Now, it's easy for us to think, wow, that's crazy. Jezebel and Athaliah, they are way more sinful than we are, right? There is no way I could do anything like that. No way. And maybe not, maybe not, but really, if we stop... And long enough and think, maybe we will see areas of sin in our own life. Remember, even though God has given us new hearts and new desires, remember we're still in a mixed condition, right? We're not who we were, right? Praise God. And um, we're not where we will be in eternity with him and no sin. But now we still have a residue of sin. We're still battling sin today. And you know what? I know there are times in my life when I want to be in control, when I want to rule, when I want to control others, especially those in my household. 
Is that something any, do any of you struggle with that? Am I the only one? <laughs> to grasp after what we want, maybe sin to get it. See, we can struggle with the same things, the same sin, and it is destructive. It's destructive. So we must guard our hearts above all else. Our new hearts in their mixed condition we need to lay them bare before God's word and plead with God for a household that aligns with God's desire over our own desire. Shepherd our heart that way. Ladies, we will, we do have an impact on our household for sure. The question is, what kind of an impact? What kind of an impact? We started with looking at the relationship between the heart and household relationships in Scripture, and then we saw the way Ruth's heart for God impacted her household in a beautiful way. And we've um, just seen just how destructive it is when there's rejection of God's heart for the household. Um, it's so important to understand God's heart for the household and see the impact that we have in those relationships in our home. So let's move on to point number four, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. And let's go back to Deuteronomy 8. And as you're turning there, there's a little context. We're back now on the plains of Moab where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. And it's 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt. And uh, this is uh, Moses' warning to the Israelites, starting in verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances that his, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. So he's telling Israel, when you're enjoying the blessings of God, everything's going well, he says, beware, beware. It's time to be concerned. Because that's when you'll be tempted to forget God. And how will you know? How will you know that you've forgotten God? You will not be obeying. Let's move on in verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, Here's the warning. Then your heart, become, your heart becomes proud, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's warning them ahead of time. You know, the household that he's given them, where he is blessing them so richly, where that's where they needed to be aware of the danger they were in. They needed to guard against pride, to guard against forgetting who their provider was and what he had done for them. And you know what? We need to be aware of the danger and guard our hearts of the very same thing, to guard against pride, to forget our provider, God, especially when things are going well in our household. We too need to be aware of that danger and guard against it. And thankfully in Christ, you know, our household can be a platform for impacting everyone who lives there and who enters there, regardless of season of life and regardless of circumstance, prosperity or hardship, we must uh, not forget his provision. The provision of our highest treasure, Christ. We get God. So we don't want to forget God in our household. Okay, let's keep going. Number five on your outline, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. We're not going to look at Acts 10 this morning, but I encourage you to read on your own about Cornelius. But this is where just one man longing for God can be an instrument for the gospel in a household. But, um, but we are going to look at Acts 16. So turn to Acts 16. Am I just going way too fast? No? Okay. Too slow. <laughs> um, this is where Paul and Silas were traveling from city to city in Europe and Asia strengthening the churches, and they came to Philippi, and here's where we read about Lydia. Um, 
chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Luke says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, Lydia believed in the God of Israel. God divinely brings Paul and Silas to her, where she and her household are gathered for prayer. And verse 14 tells us that the Lord opened her heart to the things spoken by Paul. So we can conclude that Lydia already believed in Messiah anticipated, but most likely um, told her that Messiah had come. And so her faith was transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known. As a believer in God, she already understood the concern she was to have in her household. She would have already known scriptures, so um, we see that she had a connection to her household, and that they were, um, they were already there with her when Paul spoke. And we know that their faith was also transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known from verse 15, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. So we see Lydia's concern from the beginning um, for her household and the impact she had. Now let's look at verse 29, and we'll see the same thing with the Philippian jailer. Sometime later, Paul and Silas are thrown in jail because of a big uprising in Philippi, beginning in Acts 16, 19. Um, they had received severe beatings. Um, they were in a dark, smelly prison. Their feet were clamped in stocks, so they couldn't move. They were not comfortable. They were bloody. They were broken men. And remember, what do we find them doing? Are they grumbling and complaining about their circumstance? Were they stewing over being persecuted unjustly? No, they were worshiping. They were worshiping God. I love what Scott says about this um, on this passage. The best missionaries are undetoured worshipers. The one who is most captivated by the love of God will be most effective in being used by God. The one who is most captivated by the love of God will be most effective in being used by God. So, there's this violent earthquake, all the doors were open, the prisoners' chains come loose, all serving God's sovereign purpose, right? The Philippian jailer, he assumes that everyone's escaped, which would have meant that he would have been executed as a consequence for failing his duties as a jailer. So he's about to kill himself. And Paul calls out to assure him, do yourself no harm. We're all here. So he shows compassion on the jailer. And then the jailer asks the only reasonable question after witnessing what had just taken place. He calls to them in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What an important, significant question. He didn't ask, like, whoa, what happened? What is all of this? He knew. And how did they answer? They said, believe. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with those who were in his house. He brings their prisoners to his household. We see the jailer's connection there with his household. And because they were there by verse 32, um, it says, And they heard the answer to the question as well. What must I do to be saved? In the night, a whole household was changed forever. Verse 33, And then he took them that very hour and that night. He washed their wounds. So he went from fastening their stocks, their feet in stocks, to showing compassion and washing their wounds and feeding them. And... Uh, Immediately he was baptized, he and his household. 
and it says that um, he brought them into the house, set food before them. They rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So one man gets saved and impacts the whole household. I mean, what seemed like something so terrible was about to happen to Paul and Silas was actually God's plan all along. God's plan was to bring the gospel to the jailer and to save him and his household. So we see the impact that this jailer, this one person seeking after the Lord, being saved, made on an entire household. And you know what? God desires that we do the same, that we bring the gospel into our households every day as well. And to do this effectively, we must be sure we are soaking in the truths of the gospel, to be the hands and feet of Christ to those in our household. Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and because we love his word. And you know, it just it takes daily dependence on him to ask him, God, if you would be pleased to take and change my whole household because of what you've done in me, through what you're doing in me, putting ourselves under his word, living as Christ's slave in our household. That's what we want. But you know what? There's an attack on the household. There's an attack. We're on number six on your outline. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, 1. Should it surprise us that there would actually be an attack on the household? If this is the kind of link between our hearts and our household and what God wants to accomplish, we shouldn't be surprised that the home is a place of attack by the enemy. Second Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, there again we see the household, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. Why? Verse 6, for among them are those who enter into households, and, and what do they do in those households? Captivate weak women. And what characterizes this weakness? They are weak because they are weighed down with sin led on by various impulses. These are women who, in verse 7, are always learning, always learning, and they are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Evidently, these are women in these homes that don't know God's word. They don't know how the gospel addresses their sin. Therefore, they're weighed down by their sin. They were weak and susceptible. They're being led by their impulses and by their desires. They weren't well equipped to know how to deal with their sin or their impulses or their desires or the truth of the gospel and the realities of the gospel's impact. They're always learning. They're always learning something, but it's not heart-impacting learning. Not heart-shepherding to the word of God learning to get the knowledge of the truth so they're vulnerable to attack so this is a sobering warning to us we too have to be vigilant because attacks against the christian household often come as come disguised to look benign or harmless so who or what might be creeping in to our homes in our day in our generation our culture has a really uh, loud, strong voice, and it comes to us in our TVs and in social media and blogs and sermons, even sermons, uh, magazines, schools, telling us to give in to our impulses, give in to our desires, telling us to be a lover of self. They want us to believe that it's healthy and we deserve to put ourselves first. There is a self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed, Message saying that that's how you solve your problems. With no gospel answer, no gospel power, even in a lot of materials that cloak themselves with the word Christian. So we have to be really careful. 
We have to be careful and we have to scrutinize everything we read, everything we watch, everything we listen to, and put it under the authority of God's word. We need to guard what we're keeping out and be purposeful in what we're putting in. Guard what we're keeping out and be purposeful in what we're putting in. That's why we spend so much time on Discipline 1. Because if we don't understand why and how to shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word, if we don't use God's truth in the gospel to fuel our repentance, to fuel our growth and holiness, what can happen? We too can become weak women. We can pose a threat to our household, to our church, and to the gospel mission. So this is serious. This is serious. We too can be vulnerable to believing lies, to drinking the world's Kool-Aid, and whatever message they have. And then just passing it right along to those closest to us. So this is a strong warning. We've got to guard against the attack and care and protect those who are living in our households and those who enter. And I know, again, many of you are doing this well, but we all need to hear the warning and be aware. We also need to guard against exalting the household above the gospel. Let's turn to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, and let's look at... um, the family or the home can be an obstacle to the gospel. Starting in verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemy will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying that our identity in Christ is first, always, and foremost. Jesus makes a strong point that the gospel and his kingdom is first, and everything else and everyone else is second, including our family. So here's an example. Um, say in a household, God invades one person, and he saves that person, and she's transformed, and she's called to bring the gospel into the rest of the family, and sometime other family mem- sometimes other family members are saved, whole, or a whole household is saved by God's grace, like Lydia or the Philippian jailer. And we know, we know that's in the Lord's hands. But Jesus is teaching that's not always the case. For some of us, we might actually find that our families become divided. There's conflict. Um, I've experienced this, and maybe some of you have too, and it's very, very difficult. But if the family in any way becomes to stand, or um, begins to stand in the way of the gospel, believers are to follow Christ not their family, even while staying in that family, in that household. And she displays the changes Christ has made in her, and she loves her family, and she serves her family, she forgives and seeks forgiveness in that family, and submits appropriately. So we need to keep reminding ourselves that our identity is in Christ first. Our identity is not in a wife, not in a mommy first, not in a grandma first, but it's in Christ first. Our identity in Christ is greater than our household or family, our identity. And that's why we can love and esteem and even serve those in our household, those closest to us, regardless of their reaction, regardless of their reaction because of the gospel's impact on our own lives. So we see God places a huge priority on the household. And uh, so we should uh, never, ever put that above the identity in Christ. Practically, here's another example. If I put my identity in my family first, um, you might find me saying things like, you know, that's just the way our family does it. We always argue at Thanksgiving. We get mad at one another and storm out and, you know, whatever, right? We might find um, ourselves saying that. Um, Or, you know, hanging on to family traditions and Ways and maybe even uh, find an excuse to sin in that. For us, we have um, family of a false religion where at times we may have to make some decisions 
Um, and we do that with love and we do it with grace, but we are Christ first. There's no better way to love those in your household than to do that, to keep your affection for Christ in your heart first. And the gospel enables you to love. The gospel enables you to shine the light of Jesus in the midst of your family, even if you're the only believer there. All right, let's turn to Ephesians 5. We're on number 8 on your outline, where we see submission to a husband requires a strong grasp of the gospel. So here's, here's uh, another household relationship that we're going to look at briefly. But whether you're married or not, ladies, your understanding of biblical marriage is so important. Our culture fights so hard to make a mockery of Christian marriage. So it's our responsibility to see the beauty of the gospel portrayed in Christian marriage. And again, we see God's heart for the household in marriage. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. So we think about marriage, or to think about Christ in the church. We all need to treasure, we all need to support and build up biblical marriage and how we think about marriage and how we talk about marriage, how we respond to marriage, how we talk about our husbands or anyone else's husbands, how we talk about men. Understanding submission changes. Um, from that dreaded word, submission, to that beautiful, beautiful word picture of how Christ again and again submitted himself to the will of the Father. Just as husbands are to submit themselves to the headship of the Lord, wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. And we submit to Christ. We submit to Christ in everything. A woman, a woman looks, a wife looks beyond her husband to Christ out of reverence for Jesus. In light of all that he has done for us and us through the gospel, we submit to Christ and we submit to our husbands. Your husband is your spiritual leader. And if, you know, when we struggle to trust our earthly leader, we can still follow him because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. He's sovereign. He's good. And that is where we rest our confidence. And submitting to our husbands. And that's where we encourage one another to do the same thing. And there's going to be more teaching on that later this year. And finally, number nine, um, a New Testament model of marriage is Priscilla and Aquila. And they have a sweet marriage and they, um, they serve together um, with Paul. And we're out of time, so you're going to have to read um, that on your own later. But so as we wrap up, what are we seeing here in all of this. We've seen God's inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our homes. We've seen that women who love God place a priority on spiritually influencing her household with her heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen that as a faithful believer in the gospel, we are to bring an aroma to the rest of our household to guard our hearts and protect our household, to root out false thinking, any thinking that could come in and deceive us and negatively influence our families. So it's the spiritual climate of your home. Do you see how much is at stake as we think about the next generation and the reputation of God's word? Our obedience in our homes is essential for exalting God's design and his gospel work. And you know, our household relationships can be the place of our biggest failures. My household is often the place of my biggest failure and deepest regrets because of my own sin. As I live as a sinner saved by God's grace, living with a sinner saved by God's grace, there are times when I can be provoking. I can seek control. I want to rule others. I want my own way. There are many regrets as I look back on my life. And if you do too, remember, 
we don't lose hope. We don't lose hope. It's not too late. Our homes are the perfect showcase for the gospel and, and the work of the gospel in you and through you, even now. This is a, it's a place where we seek forgiveness, where we extend forgiveness, where we love, where we serve those whom God has in your home today and those who enter into your home. And it's God's grace that he would bring us even to the end of ourselves so that he gets all the glory for the work that he is doing in us as we grow in being a gospel aroma in our homes. None of us have this wired. We are growing in it. As we learn to trust our Savior, trustworthy Savior, in our household, regardless of how others respond. The impact of the gospel is that powerful to enable us to love the people in our household and those who enter only because God's loved us first. So as we look at what God's word says about the home, you know, maybe it will expose failure, maybe sin, but when God exposes sin, it's for the purpose of restoration, believer. Restoration with him, with others. That's his grace to us. It's good. So we plead with God to develop his love in our hearts, to be undetoured worshipers, right, in our homes, to be undetoured worshipers, knowing his inseparable relationship between his word our hearts, and our homes. Let's encourage one another to take advantage of every opportunity God gives us to love, to care for those in our homes and in our household and in those household relationships, those who enter, as we seek to display the gospel's impact in our own hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that is our prayer, that you would use us mightily in our households to impact others for the gospel, Lord, that we would desire and seek to align ourselves with your word. Thank you for the time we've had this morning to open your word. Thank you for these precious women. And now as they go and they uh, just talk about either this lesson or their homework, Lord, I pray that they would be encouragers um, to one another. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.